The first reading is from Job chapter 32. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. <clears throat> he was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. And now from Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. I get it right from time to time. We're going to respond to that word uh, from God by saying together the words of the Nicene Creed, this ancient creed of what we believe together. It's said regularly uh, in the Book of Common Prayer and the Anglican services in our communion services. Would you please stand? Together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Would you please be seated? Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. What will happen next? At the end of chapter 31, the book of Job has reached what looks like its climax. Job has just laid it on the line for God to show up and answer him. <clears throat> this is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. 
Let my opponent put his indictment in writing. Suspense is running high. It's showdown time. Job has made a detailed declaration of his innocence on oath. This will force God to act or else declare he is without fault. <clears throat> Before this, Job had been arguing with his three friends who've come from afar to console and comfort him in his terrible suffering. This has gone on for 24 chapters. Job had been the greatest man in the East, a man of immense wealth and honour. He was also a man of the highest character and piety. Both the narrator and God declare that this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. However, faced with the challenge that Job is really only fearing God and shunning evil because the Lord has made his life go well, God removes his protection. And Job catastrophically loses everything he has without wealth, honor, family, or even health. Job is plunged into deep misery. And the three come along to console and comfort him. And yet, in the end, his well-meaning friends are complete failures. Job is neither consoled nor comforted, but rather made alienated and angry. So faced with the failure of his friends, Job attempts to solve the crisis himself. He makes a direct challenge to God to show up and tell the truth about Job. Show him what he's done wrong to justify this misery upon himself or else declare him innocent and vindicate him. That's where we are at the end of chapter 31 of the book of Job, which concludes the words of Job are ended. So what next? Will God speak? Will he remain silent? The tension is palpable. Here's what happens next. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Now, no one saw that coming. This Elihu person hasn't been mentioned before. We had no idea he was there all the time, listening to what's been going on. And now we're told he is there. He is young, and he's been getting angrier and angrier with everybody. And he'll shortly let them all know all about it. For five now chapters coming, he will dish it out. A bit on the friends, but mostly on Job. And then, just as he appeared without trace, he will disappear without trace. Cut off, ignored by the Lord, who comes answering Job out of the whirlwind. What are we to make of all this? 
what to do about Elihu? That's the question. Are his words a much-needed corrective to Job, who's gone too far? Or is Elihu not, not much more than a slightly humorous distraction from the movement of the book? Scholars do not agree. They're all, they do not agree. Even we on the staff team here at Churchill have struggled with this. Attentive parishioners will, of course, remember that in our orders of service at the beginning of our series on Job, this particular sermon had been given the title, The Insightful Comforter. Then we realise that Elihu is not really a comforter, and we're not sure how insightful he is. So we change it to the more neutral title, The Angry Young Man. Well, what about this angry young man? What are we to make of him? Now, it's a feature of biblical narrative, especially Old Testament biblical narrative, that very much the characters are revealed in their words. The Bible uses most commonly speech to unpack what a person is, and descriptions of them is rare. So I'm going to read to you now the beginning of Elihu's speech from 332.6 to 37, you'll notice, by the way, I've put all the verse numbers down, so later on you might want to go back and follow on again if you need to. The question is, what kind of guy is this speaking? So Elihu, son of Barakil the Buzzite, said, I'm young in years, and you were old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it's the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It's not only the wise, not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Okay, so far so good. It's a bit of an okay boomer moment, I'll grant that. But uh, here he goes. Therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you searched for words. I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have found wisdom, let God, not man, refute him. But God has not marshaled his words against me, and I'll not answer him with your words, your arguments. They are dismayed. They have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent? Now they stand there with no reply. I too will have my say. I, tell, I too will tell what I know. I am full of words and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I'm like a bottled up wine, new wineskins ready to burst. By the way, that translation is a bit overly nice, I think. Verse, 19, verse 18 of chapter 32, um, there's a footnote in the RSV. No, sorry, no, there's no footnote, there should have been. Um, the spirit within me compels me, is literally in the Hebrew, the wind, or spirit, same word in Hebrew, ruach, within my belly swells me. My belly swells with wind. Right? It's that, and I think that's how it should be read. I'll do it again. For I am full of words. Wind fills my belly. Inside I'm like a bottled up wine. New wineskins ready to burst. He goes on. I must speak to find relief. 
I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality, nor will I flatter anyone. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. Now at last he addresses our hero. But now, Job, listen to me. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer then if you can. Stand up and argue a case before me. I'm the same as you in God's sight. I'm a two and piece of clay. No feet of you should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. Okay, what do you think, hearing that? Well, there are two things I think we can say. One, he is long-winded. Right? That's a very loquacious 23 verses telling us he's about to say something before he actually says it. And secondly, he's not lacking in self-confidence, is he? He's very sure of himself. And at verse chapter 36, verse 2, he even says this, I quote, Bear with me a little longer, and I will show you there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I'll describe justice to my maker. Be assured my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. You can't help wonder if all this is somewhat a slightly comic portrayal of the stereotypical brash windbag. Without saying as many words, it looks as if Elihu here is being betrayed as someone the book of Proverbs would call a fool. Here are three Proverbs from the book of Proverbs on a fool. Proverbs 26 verse 12. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Proverbs 29 verse 11. Fools give vent to their anger, but the wise bring calm in the end. And especially Proverbs 17, 27, 28. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent, and discerning if they hold their tongues. Well, not Elihu. He has much to say. Here he is stepping in to defend God to Job who dared challenge him and to put Job well and truly in his place. What has he got to say? Basically three things. One, he paints Job as an arrogant rebel. For example, his very first words to Job in chapter 33, verse 8, start like this. But you have said in my hearing, I heard your very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. Actually, if you go back, that's actually not quite accurate. What Job has said repeatedly is that he's not aware of any sin that would account for the ferocity of his suffering. He even challenges his friends and God to show him his misdeeds, if they can. So it's not simply I've done no wrong, I'm pure, I'm clean. Elihu has mischaracterized Job. 
And he can get pretty angry with Job as well. To Elihu, Job's words make him no better than the wicked. Chapter 34, verse 7. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked, for he says there is no profit in trying to please God. Well, that's not entirely accurate either, actually. Job didn't say that of himself. But we won't worry about that now. Later, in chapter 34, 34, Elihu tells us what those in the know have told Elihu when Elihu's talked to them about Job. Quote, Men of understanding declare, Wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin, he adds rebellion. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. The first thing. Secondly, Elihu is incensed at the very suggestion that God could be unjust. Just one item, 34.10. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. For he repays everyone what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It's unthinkable that God could do wrong, that the Almighty would perverse justice. Implication where that puts Job. And there's a great deal in, in these speeches, in fact, about God's exalted authority in his just judgments of the wicked and his rewards of the, of the righteous, whoever they may be. Third, Elihu has two things to say about Job's particular demand that God should answer him. On one hand, he assures Job that God does speak in many different ways to those suffering, through dreams, visions and the like, to bring them to repentance. He even speaks, as it were, through their afflictions, 36.8. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by the cords of affection, he, that's God, tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. Job is, even says that God is even now trying to get Job to hear him and to repent and he'll get it all back. Verse chapter 36, 15. But those who suffer, he delivers from their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He's wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. If only Job would listen and repent, then all the goods would come back. What's wrong with him? On the other hand, Elihu mocks the idea that God would ever respond personally, directly to Job's repeated requests for God to turn up and answer him. God is not affected by human sin nor human goodness, says Elihu. He is beyond responding to particular calls to, upon him for human suffering. Let alone that of the wicked, let alone you, Job. Chapter 35, verse 12. He, that's God, does not answer when people cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then we listen when you say you do not see him, that your case is before him, that you must wait for him. 
And to drive this point home, Elihu goes on at some length to urge Job to stop and consider God's wonders. Towards the end of his words, there's quite a marvellous passage where he describes the power of God in bringing about a terrifying storm. And then at the end of his words, he says this. This is verse 37, 19. Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he, this God, be told, I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes with golden splendour. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore people revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? That last phrase, does he not have regard for all the wise in heart, is footnoted in the NIVs, which you would have had if you'd brought your Bible to church. And you see the footnote would have said this, or, for he does not have regard for any who think they are wise. He, or he, in other words, either a question, does he not, or it's actually a statement, he does not have regard for any who think they are wise. And the phrase think they are wise in the Hebrew is actually who is wise in their own hearts. It's quite a strong phrase. And I think that's the way to read it. He does not have regard for any who think they are wise. And that's quite important because in, in understanding how the, Elihu's speech ends, or rather, how it gets cut off by God. Let me read what, the last verse, what happens to Elihu's speaking. Ready? This is chapter... 37 verse 24. Therefore, people reveal him, for he does not have regard for any who think they are wise. The next sentence. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, God ignores Elihu. In fact, he has no regard for any who think they are wise. He cuts him off. And in speaking, God proves Elihu wrong. Yes, the Lord does appear to turn up and answer Job, despite everything Elihu has just said. Although, as we'll hear in the coming weeks, God will not answer Job in the way that Job had demanded. And yet Job will find the rest and the peace from turmoil that has until now eluded him. He will withdraw his case and be reconciled to God and eventually restored that's still to come the next three weeks so don't miss out any one of them today however the question is where does this leave us with Elihu what to do with Elihu three things again one the appearance of Elihu is unexpected and somewhat humorous the comic element relieves, just for a moment, the intensity and dark tone of the book of Job, so far. And Elihu's speech does reinforce many of the themes of the books so far, despite his effort to claim he's now got, he'll show them what they should have said. Basically, he said nothing much more than they've already said. So, but, but in a slightly more jarring way. And these five chapters slow, but what they do, they slow the action down between Job's challenge to God and the Lord's eventual response, which increases the tension. 
Interestingly, Elihu describes God's power in a storm, speaking in a general way. Then suddenly, suddenly the Lord does answer Job out of the storm, presumably now a real one. The nearest parallel to the Elihu chapters is, I think, the gravedigger scene in, Hamlet's, in Shakespeare's play Hamlet. I don't know if you know it. At the end of the fourth act of this play, uh, it's heading to what looks like a certain and violent climax. Hamlet is due home from his exile in England, and a plot has been hatched by his evil stepfather and the angry brother of his dead girlfriend to murder Hamlet in a rigged sword fight. That's how Act 4 ends. Act 5 begins. What do we find? I quote, Scene 1, a churchyard. Enter two clowns with spades, etc. And if you know the play, unexpectedly there's this comic scene beginning with two gravediggers joking about death, which, which becomes more and more serious as the, as the scene joins in. And then the next scene is when all the action happens. The effect is comic relief, which heightens the tension, yet moves the play to its tragic, bloody conclusion. And that's how I see the Elihu chapters in the book of Job. Comic relief, which both heightens the tension and moves the play to its conclusion. Except here, the conclusion is not bloody tragedy and death, but life, wisdom and restoration. Second, we mustn't forget that Elihu gets a lot right in what he says. That's why it's not easy to work out what to make of him. It may pay me to say this, but yes, wisdom is not necessarily the monopoly of the aged. There are some younger people who do know a thing or two. And yes, God can and often does speak to us in our pain. And yes, God cannot do evil. And yes, God is exalted and manifest, powerfully manifest in his wild creation. Some of Elihu's themes here are even echoed by the Lord himself when he questions Job about the Lord's care of his creation. But third, Elihu is also a model for us what not to do. For all that he gets right, he shows elements of being the fool. His anger, his bombast, his insufferable arrogance, his oversimplifications, an evident lack of understanding of poor, suffering Job are examples of what each of us should avoid and stand as a warning that, be we young or be we old, do not do an Elihu. Speak with love, not anger. Be careful of becoming a self-appointed spokesperson for God. Be humble in your confidence of what you know what's going on, and really listen. But that is not my last word. My last word is not actually going to be about what we should be like, but to whom we should turn. In our need, in our times of suffering and pain, of frustration and bewilderment, 
no matter how different they may be from Job's unique situation, we turn not to an angry young man who's going to yell at us, but rather to the man whom God has appointed for us, whose body was given for us and whose blood was shed for us. Hebrews 4, verse 17. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's about as far from Elihu as you can get. 